You're listening to Entrepreneurs Podcast. That's entree, like Spanish for between. Pre, like our prepubescent sense of humor. And nerds, like the guys around the microphone. Hey guys, I'm Kareem. And I'm Daniel. And this is the one-year anniversary of Entrepreneurs. One year! One year, 20 episodes. 12 months, 52 weeks. 360, well, it's closer to 385 days at this point. (laughs) We are so excited to share with you our one-year anniversary celebration, which, as most of you know, uh, the one-year anniversary present is paper. And that's why this episode we have an author public speaker, thought leader, uh, business genius in my book. He uh, is one of the biggest proponents of the uh, triple bottom line model, where uh, you focus on profit, people, and the planet. Yeah, when it comes to somebody who understands conscious capitalism, he literally founded it and wrote the book about it. Uh, we talk about his book, Shakti Leadership, Conscious Capitalism, Firms of Endearment. It's all uh, part of this interview. But I have to tell you, one of the reasons we started this podcast was because Kareem and I and Adam, we started talking about businesses with purpose, uh, people that were doing it right, companies that had the right ideas. And a lot of that came from our study of thought leaders like Raj. And in fact, reading the book Conscious Capitalism was something that inspired me to share the stories of people in Columbus and our community and beyond that really understand that business model. So take a listen to this and uh If you enjoy it, make sure you're helping us and supporting us on Patreon. This is a one-year anniversary. It is the paper anniversary. So send us some paper and go to patreon.com slash entrepreneurspodcast and support us there. We have lots of great you know, rewards and uh, levels of support. Some of it includes being able to do more interviews like this. Some of it's just to support Kareem's fidget spinner addiction. These are important things. This is Raj Sisodia. Thanks for listening and come back at the end while we celebrate all the great people that made this year happen. Hello. Hi, Raj. It's Daniel. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Good. You uh, are all your days uh, completely filled and super busy. <laughs> you know, today is extra because I have a board call starting so all afternoon from 12 to 6. Which board? Uh, this is the container store. Oh, okay. Tell everyone I said hello. I will. And <laughs> and then we have this book deadline on the uh, Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. Oh, very cool. Next, uh, next Monday. And today I needed to send two chapters to my co-authors for their review. So You had to just finish these two chapters of the Field Guide just now. Well, I had to revise them. <laughs> I had written them over the uh, last few days, and I had to just revise them and then send it to them. You know, so. so I got it done. So now I'm with a clear mind. Do, do you find uh, yourself to be deadline-oriented? <laughs> yes, very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very similar. I You give me 10 weeks to do something, I'll get it done in 48 hours. Yep. Yeah, that's how it seems to work, you know. Wow. Yeah, typically I go away on writing retreats for a week at a time, you know, and then that's how I finally get things done, you know. So. It, it helps to relieve some of the distraction, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely, so. So uh, I really appreciate you speaking with us today. Uh, you know, Entrepreneurs Podcast is all about uh, conscious capitalism and purpose, and we with a big focus on in Columbus, but we talk to uh, thought leaders everywhere. But um, you are certainly uh, one of the biggest names uh, in the world when it comes to what we talk about, and uh, in terms of subject subject matter experts, you're the one. So really excited to talk to you today. 
Well, thank you. I hope I can do justice to that. Uh, well, speaking of do, doing justice, I'll embarrass you for a little bit with an introduction here. Okay. Uh, so uh, today, everyone, we are speaking uh, with best-selling author and thought leader Raj Sodia. He is F.W. Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business and Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College and the co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. He has a Ph.D. in marketing from Columbia University, and he has been cited as one of the 50 leading marketing thinkers, noted as one of the 10 outstanding trailblazers of 2010, and one of the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behavior. Last year, Raj collaborated on a new book, Shakti Leadership, exploring how to unlock both the masculine and feminine powers in business and leadership. Welcome officially to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Very happy to be with you. So tell us uh, really quickly uh, for your plug worthiness. Tell us how people can reach out to you, find out more about you and your books and what you do at Babson. Well, it's pretty easy to find me. There's no place to hide, you know. So <laughs> you can just type in my name, but you can also go to rajsisodia.com, my personal website that has uh, uh, information about all the books and uh, videos of many talks and so forth. Uh, and also uh, through the Babson website, so rsisodia at babson.edu. Excellent. So we've heard a lot about you uh, in the introduction, and uh, a lot of our listeners have heard uh, about you and the conscious capitalism movement over the past year. Now, when we look at a little bit more of your history, we see electrical engineer uh, at some point. So how do you go from electrical engineer to an award-winning author of books like Conscious Capitalism and Everybody Matters, that sort of tech-centric to people-centric uh, frame of mind? Yeah, I know it's an interesting journey. You know, it can only make sense looking back. Uh, <clears throat> at the time, growing up in India in the 70s, it was more of an opportunistic thing that if you had the opportunity to go to engineering school, you did, because that's where the jobs were. If you happen to be good in math and science, if you were good in biology and science, then you went to uh, medicine or you tried to. So I kind of uh, went into that almost by default, even though I really didn't have a passion as such for engineering but it was the most practical, pragmatic thing to do. But what I really enjoyed was writing, and uh, I also had a disposition that I think from the beginning was more along the lines of, as you describe, people-centric. Uh, but for a long time, I had to put on the mask and put on the armor and try to be part of a world in a different way. But over time, I think uh, what's authentic about ourselves eventually comes to the surface if we allow it to. If we stay connected to who we are, then regardless of where we start out, I think we can end up in a place that is aligned with, with our essence. That's an excellent answer. I think uh, very similarly, the, the other people that I've talked to uh, over the past year and in other parts of my life have that same center where they keep coming back to what makes them passionate and uh, eventually you have to give in to that. <laughs> Yeah, in my case, it took decades, actually, you know, because uh, after engineering, I decided to go to business school for the purely practical reason that in India, India in those days, your salary would double and you would work in an air-conditioned office. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> enough. That's a great money. motivation. <laughs> Especially working in a in a electrical switchgear factory in uh, in the outskirts of Bombay, as it was called in those days. Uh, so that's why I went to business school again, and I chose marketing because I knew I did not like finance. Uh, 
And so all my decisions were kind of rooted in that kind of short-term, immediate pragmatism, looking at the options available at the time and choosing what seemed to be the best one. And somehow that accidentally, in a way, led me to come to the U.S. to get a Ph.D. in marketing because uh, I didn't even know that such a thing existed. But I came down for breakfast one day in my graduate dorm. I already had a job lined up after my MBA to be a consultant, but I saw a bunch of my friends who were dressed up and going somewhere on a day we didn't have any classes. So I asked them why, and they said they were going to the U.S. Information Agency to pick up GMAT applications. And I said, we're already doing our MBA. Why do you need GMAT? They said, no, we want to apply for a PhD in business. I said, I didn't know you can get a PhD in business. So give me five minutes. I'll come with you. And so that's how, out of that group of nine people, I ended up going with them. And I'm the only one from those nine who ended up coming to the U.S. to get a PhD in business. <laughs> you know, and it just happened because I came down for breakfast. You had enough time to uh, run upstairs, comb your hair, and put on a suit. <laughs> no suit. I, no. Just, uh, I don't even know if I owned a suit. But, you know, so I think that's how... I came to the U.S. I had lived here as a child for a few years, and I always wanted to come back, but I didn't know how. And this became an opportunity, so I decided to do a Ph.D. And, uh, you know, and then started teaching my, and marketing, as I said, because I knew I didn't like finance. It was marketing and strategy, basically, which was interesting to me. But then as I started teaching, over time, I started to see many of the flaws and problems with marketing. Especially you come to this country from other places, uh, and especially in those days, you know, you get inundated with marketing. There's just an extraordinary amount of advertising, constant promotions, sales happening, uh, you know, every day, every week, uh, direct mail, junk mail. You just get bombarded with all of this. And my interest in, uh, from an academic standpoint soon became focused on marketing ethics to begin with. Like there was a lot of misinformation and, uh, you know, taking advantage of customers, it seemed. But also over time, focusing on the issue of productivity, spending a lot of money on marketing and what are we getting for it was my question. And so we did a lot of academic research on that. We showed how spending had gone up while customer satisfaction had fallen and customer loyalty and trust had plummeted. And this didn't seem right. We're spending more and more every year and we are getting less and less. There seemed to be something fundamentally wrong with the way we thought about and practiced marketing. So over time, that became my primary focus from a research standpoint. How can we improve marketing efficiency, effectiveness, ethics, and performance, and productivity? And having made the case that you know, we were doing very poorly on all of those. And uh, you know, I remember uh, in 2007, we had done some analysis that we were spending a trillion dollars a year on marketing in this country equivalent to the GDP of India that year. Now, when I thought about it in those terms, I said, how is it possible that a billion people are living on what we are spending here on ads and coupons and all the gimmickry of marketing? And what are we getting for those trillion dollars for customers, for companies, and for society? And my research had concluded that we really weren't getting a lot. In fact, we also had a lot of negative consequences from that spending in terms of people's health and well-being, in terms of societal issues like the environment and overconsumption and so forth. So, so that became my path of inquiry. And uh, we had written a book called uh, Does Marketing Need Reform? And then I started another book on, on this problem, but it was called The Shame of Marketing, believe it or not. 
you know, looking at all the problems of marketing. And fortunately, I got the best advice from my mentor at that point in time. And he told me, you know, Raj, in this country, people want to know about the solution. They don't want to hear about the problem. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. That was such a simple but profound thing for me. I said, you're right. And I just turned it around. I called it in search of marketing excellence. <laughs> and I said, uh, most companies spend a ton of money and have lousy loyalty and trust from their customers. Uh, who's doing the opposite of that? Spending you know, modest amounts, but having outstanding customer loyalty and trust. And what are they doing and how can we emulate that? And that led to a search for those kinds of businesses and Whole Foods was one of them and many others that were virtually spending zero on marketing. They had no ad campaigns, they had no chief marketing officers, you know, and yet they had outstanding customer loyalty and trust. And they're saying, what's going on here? And we found that even their employees were equally loyal and trusting and their suppliers and the communities embraced them, you know. So they had this stakeholder mindset and they were creating value for everybody and treating everybody well. And that ultimately resulted in not only less need to spend money on marketing, but less need to spend money on employee turnover and, and uh, you know, uh, stable supplier relationships and so forth. And so we found the stakeholder mindset was an essential element of these kinds of businesses. And then we discovered the other aspects too. First of all, that there was a reason for them to exist. You know, companies like Whole Foods and Container Store and Southwest Airlines and so forth have a higher purpose. It's not just the, they're not just there to make money. So the idea of the higher purpose along with the stakeholder mindset became two elements of this different way of doing business. And then we discovered the leaders were different and the cultures were very different. They were not driven with fear and stress, but had a lot of caring and authenticity and transparency and trust. So those became sort of the, uh, the definitional pillars. That book was ultimately called Firms of Endearment. And at the end of the research, we did the financial analysis, and to our great surprise, we found that these companies outperformed the market dramatically uh, over a long, uh, you know, ten-year time horizon. Even though they're paying their people better and investing in customer care and investing in the environment and in their communities and paying taxes at a higher rate and so forth, they actually make more money for investors. So they're not focused on maximizing profits, and yet they are more profitable. And that was a fundamental surprise but a deep lesson that there's a different way of being uh, in in the world of business and that you can operate with this completely different operating system and be highly successful using traditional measures but that doesn't come at the expense of people and at the expense of communities and and the environment and our very future you know traditional business sacrifices all of those things in order to make a profit today and that is not necessary, and in fact, it's a, it's, you know, it's a tragic misapplication of, of these ideas. How can we continue to do business in that way when we don't need to do it that way, when we can achieve simultaneous positive impact? So, so that was a life-changing moment for me when we were writing that book. I felt myself awakened to my own purpose, that I wanted to now do everything I can for the rest of my life to spread this idea, this way of being that you can come from a love and care and you can be highly successful, that that doesn't make you weak as a person or as a business. And, uh, and so that's really been uh, my path into this way of thinking and uh, got connected with John Mackey soon after that. He read the book, he loved it. We met and then we, we said, you know, we have a shared passion in, 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 uh, in uh, trying to spread these ideas. 
And so we decided to launch the movement in 2008. We did a retreat at his ranch and invited a bunch of other people. John had already been talking about what he called conscious capitalism, which represented the same thing, a phrase that was coined by Muhammad Yunus, actually, to refer to what we would today call social businesses. But we're applying it in a broader sense that all businesses need to have society as their primary stakeholder. But that also, it's important to make money. You know, we need, we need financial wealth in society too. We don't just survive on the other things. We need that alongside everything else. So Eunice was talking about purely a social purpose. We're talking about a purpose that includes society, but also includes generating financial wealth. Because that also enables you to achieve your purpose. It's wonderful to hear you speak of it. I think uh, you so eloquently put what you know separates your way of thinking from a lot of traditional ideas about business. And when you think, okay, so this sounds great, and we put this as uh, the societal well-being first. We have this every stakeholder matters, and then you say over the long term, these people, these companies perform better. So why is it so hard? Why do so many companies fail? Why they fail in terms of in terms of doing this conscious capital? This. Why wouldn't they adopt it? Why wouldn't they yeah. start out like you know? What is it uh, that they're not seeing that you have book after book after book explaining? Yeah. Not only is is this the right way, but this is the profitable way to do business. You know, I think we're we're at a turning point where for a long time we've had a certain mental model that's been deeply entrenched in the world. You know, starting in the 19th century when economists started coming around and looking at businesses and starting to formulate this idea that profit maximization is the purpose. And so that narrative became deeply entrenched. And, you know, it's like an operating system that was created back then. And it's very hard for people to unlearn. You know, you need to unlearn while you're learning new things. You need to let go of old ideas. And for a lot of people, that's very, very difficult, number one. Number two, you know, there is... Uh, there are winners in that system, and those are specifically the leaders of many of these companies that make extraordinary amounts of money in short periods of time without really creating a lot of value for other stakeholders, right? So when you have stock options, uh, you know, in the millions, and then people are able to look at, uh, you know, three, four-year tenure as a CEO and walk away with massive amounts of money in that short period of time without actually setting the company up for long-term success. Well, those people in leadership roles who are only motivated by personal wealth and their own power, you know, for them, this way of doing business doesn't resonate because this doesn't appeal to their value system. They're not in it for anything other than their own personal wealth and power, right? And they are essentially the guardians of the system. A lot of the incumbent CEOs have come up through the ranks by being rewarded for delivering numbers. Uh, their boards of directors are stacked with people with similar mindsets. They've all done personally very well, as they define doing well, which is only in money terms, monetary terms. So they don't have that consciousness. And when you don't have that consciousness, you're not going to, uh, you know, first of all, you cannot even see an alternative reality, right? You have to change from within first. So I think that is our big challenge, is that uh, the incumbents that exist out there uh, in the world of business uh, have come from a very different path and a very different set of values and priorities. And unless they have awakenings in their own journey and their own life, you know, they're not going to change at this stage. And we have to wait for new leaders or we have to look at new companies that are starting out with a different mindset. Yeah. 
Uh, that's a, a huge challenge. And I think that when you look at uh, the, where we're at, a lot of people voted for the current president because they thought he was a business leader and, quote, unquote, that yeah. would be change. But the business we, leader we needed was somebody closer to Kip Tyndall or Herb Kelleher, you know, somebody yes. who know who thinks of all the stakeholders uh, yeah. and, and how everything affects everything else before, you know, tweeting something yeah. out and making a decision. I think that's the great uh, sort of tra tragedy in a way of this, what's happening, what the world is going through right now, uh, that it's a reversion to the old way of thinking, you know, that Trump's way of doing business is, is the opposite of conscious capitalism. It's not about creating value for everybody. It's about, you know, creating value for yourself and, and leaving a trail of victims in your path, really. Uh, that's that's been the history, but you know when people celebrate that, and when he justifies many things by saying, "Well, I'm a good businessman. That's what businessmen do. Business people do." You know, and I think some people who have not been exposed to these other ideas, these different ways of thinking, you know, a lot of people did vote for him for that reason, and in a way, he's he is kind of reasserting the old way of doing business. And I think our movement, therefore, is more needed than ever in this moment in time. You know, we have to make our case even more compellingly that we cannot afford to go backwards. You know, we are evolving on this journey as human beings, and our rising consciousness permeates every aspect of our lives. And it has to permeate the way we think about work and the way we think about business too. Business has been locked and stuck in in this old paradigm and hasn't evolved in consciousness. But I think we need to double down on those efforts. We should stop stop talking about trickle down economics and start talking about waterfall economics. How waterfall? We, that's interesting. Mm. Right. We need um, a, a waterfall or watershed of uh, of wealth and value for every stakeholder to come down from the top, not trickle down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need to create a flourishing system within which every part of that system, which is they're all interconnected, interdependent. They can all flourish together. That's the only way it ultimately works in the long term. In any living organism, you know, every part of it has to flourish for the whole thing to flourish. So we have to figure out how to do that. Well, I want to um, share with you a couple stories in uh, Columbus in central Ohio. We have a couple small businesses, and I think you'll probably agree when you look around and see a lot of the millennials who are starting businesses, they are much more focused on social enterprise and what we would coin as you know con conscious capitalism and understanding yeah. everybody's connected. And a couple of them, one of them in town is called Hot Chicken Takeover, and what they've done is in addition to all the things you'd normally think of a restaurant uh, that wants to do socially sourcing, local connection, they also, their HR model, they basically said the business is basically an HR model that sells chicken. And mm -hmm. the idea is to have uh, second chance employees, uh, what have been called second chance employees, but people that have been incarcerated or oh, yeah. would have otherwise uh, been unemployable. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's remarkable is that these people are, even higher motivated because, first of all, not a lot of people give them a second chance. So the fact that they're given that, they tend to work harder, be more loyal. Uh, there are more challenges, but there are other things built into that. The employees have uh, opportunities to get grants or loans or uh, get uh, fronted uh, their paycheck ahead of time, depending on what's going on in their life. They'll get, you know, uh, local bus passes, things like that to make sure that they're incredibly successful and are able to do their job. 
Um, another one is uh, Aunt Flo, who we just talked to on our podcast. Aunt Flo is uh, a 20-year-old named uh, Claire Coder who is starting this. Uh, she realized after she went to a startup weekend, she went to the bathroom and realized, yeah, there's free toilet paper in here, but there's no tampons. Why? Mm. And, and then you can't use your WIC card or food stamps to buy uh, hygiene products. That sounds crazy. So why isn't there somebody out there doing it? So she started her own business, which was started as a buy one, give one program, but now turned into uh, a B2B business where she is basically selling her uh, tampons and pads to uh, companies like uh, national banks or local coffee shops, and they supply them for free in their restrooms for their right. employees and their customers so that they can feel more equal in the workplace. Like something right. as small as that. She has sure. a, a warehouse that now has, you know, a million tampons in it. But as I talked to her and I, t- and I talked to Joe DeLoss from Hot Chicken Takeover, the question is, now that their business is building, now that this concept is taking off, how how do they maintain it as a small business starting in Columbus, Ohio, as they build uh, is it easier for someone to maintain it if they start that way versus uh, trying to shift, you know, the, a big company? Or what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think it's definitely easier uh, if you're starting out that way to sustain that uh, because you don't have these embedded processes and mindsets and systems and people who are aligned with another way of doing things or thinking about things. So it's definitely better in an ideal world to start out that way. And I agree with you that. Uh, the current generation of entrepreneurs, millennials and so forth are really purpose-driven and are thinking about this in a holistic way. And there are a lot of inspiring stories. Uh, The one that you mentioned about hiring incarcerated people reminded me of Greyston Bakery, which also may have pioneered that approach, what they call open hiring. And specifically, they say we we don't hire people to bake brownies, we bake brownies to hire people. And they hire people to whom all doors have been closed. And there are 70 million such people in the U.S., right? I mean, it's extraordinary. There are as many people with uh, criminal records as there are people with college degrees. You know, and how are we leaving, you know, shutting the door in their face? And, you know, very often they have all the potential and motivation and they made mistakes, they paid the price. But So, you know, this is a more forgiving world and this is a world of healing businesses that we use business as a force for healing, not just as a way to make a living. And I think that's what these businesses that you talked about are doing. They're alleviating suffering and bringing joy. And to me, that's the you know meta purpose. And that's my next book, actually, The Healing Organization. And I'd love to learn more about those businesses and others that are good examples of that. You know, so I definitely, I think starting out that way is tremendous. You need to then sort of hardwire that into the culture, into the DNA. You need to capture that in writing, in documents. You have to have your own like Declaration of Independence type document, you know, words that people can live by and uh, and, and hold people to those words, make them real. A good example of this is Barry Waymiller, the company that uh, I wrote the book with Everybody Matters with the CEO, Bob Chapman. And they have articulated all of their beliefs and, and you know their principles and so forth, and they, they really adhere to them. They hold themselves accountable to those documents. And I think that, that's something that I urge companies to, to do, to have those set of foundational documents and make them real. You know? Yeah, the, I actually had a similar conversation about creating a document like that with a uh, local business called Homage, which has um, started blowing up in terms of the vintage T-shirts that they create. But one of the things they realized was you, as a CEO, as a founder, 
you can't run the business forever and you can't be in every meeting. So having what they called their timeless principles in place would allow anybody in the business to use those as a touchstone before they make a decision to go forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's imperative, especially as you start to expand, as you said. Uh, you know, without that, you will soon lose. You know, you lose, you lose, you lose the uh, the essence. You lose the red thread, right? And it becomes just another business. Yeah, I love Roy Spence's book. It's not what you sell; it's what you stand for. As uh, yeah. for anybody out there who wants to take a look at purpose statements, and in fact, here in Columbus, we actually have a, a company called uh, StoryForge. Barry Chandler and Haley uh, Boning have started. StoryForge, which is a purpose branding company that's designed to build purpose from the ground up in every part of your business so that you can um, build your business as you grow or take large businesses and help understand what it means to really affect purpose in every stakeholder. In fact, they're starting a conscious capitalism um, satellite here in Columbus. Mm, That's great. Yeah, Yeah. sounds like you have a very... A great community for that and lots of great exemplars already. So I would urge you to do that. There is a chapter, I think, uh, around Cleveland somewhere in Northeast Ohio. But uh, but this would be different. Yeah, I can't wait to um, see how that expands and get to be a part of it. Yeah, wonderful. So uh, obviously you're you're always researching. You're always looking at businesses around the country. You know, is there a specific business that maybe we haven't talked about yet that inspires you, somebody that uh, is – really proving what it means to be a conscious leader in the market? Well, there's so many, right? I mean, I've written the Everybody Matters with, with Bob Chapman. He's right. one that inspires me. And Firms of Endearment and in Conscious Capitalism, you know, we celebrate leaders like Jim Senegal of Costco and Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines or Ratan Tata from India and, and so many others. I mean, there are these great iconic leaders <clears throat> out there who truly do stand for something, and they stand for people. As Herb Kelleher said, the business of business is people. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you know that's what he's built that extraordinary company on. And it's the most successful airline in the history of the world. And Costco is extraordinary too. And Jim Senegal has shown tremendous strength and courage as a leader to stand up for what he believes in in the face of pressure from Wall Street. Right to treat right. people well, and uh, you know, uh, why do you have to pay them? You know, 60% above Sam's Club. And so I want my people to be able to live a decent life and take care of their families. You know, that's simple as that. Right. Right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, you know, so I think there are, there are so many um, uh, great leaders that we can we can look to, and and, and many others, of course, that uh, you know, from smaller companies that don't necessarily have the high profile, but. But I'm sure this is, this is going to really explode, I think, in years to come. We'll go through exponential growth in these kinds of businesses and and these kinds of leaders. I think the Conscious Company magazine, which I don't know if you've seen, their current issue is about uh, their Conscious Leader Awards. And uh, you know, there's some great leaders that I had never heard of, and they're amazing. That's excellent. I'll have to check that out. So, you know, every business goes through cycles of stress and success. Um, I think one of the biggest things in the news right now has been about Amazon uh, making an acquisition of Whole Foods. And within a couple days after that announcement, one of the things that I saw come across my email was an email from Conscious Capitalism with a statement specifically about the merger. Why do you think that was important to get in front of the news cycle and talk about Conscious Capitalism in terms of that acquisition? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Whole Foods has been a key uh, figure in the conscious capitalism movement, along with John Mackey, as a very good example of conscious capitalism. And for most of its 39 years, the company has been a high-flying performer, right, in terms of the financial markets. Uh, although not always, you know, every great company goes through dips. And I remember when I first met John Mackey in uh, 2007, you know, soon after that, when the, the financial crisis hit, and Whole Foods stock, which had peaked at 70, came down to seven. And, uh, you know, and I saw him at our conference. I said, John, aren't you feeling all right? He said, well, you know, I don't know why the market is freaking out. It's still the same company. You know, we're down a little bit right now, but I'm sure we'll come back. Eventually, that stock went from seven to, and, uh, I think, $110, you know, within a matter of a few years. So these things happen. The market overreacts sometimes. And then there are activist investors who can step in in those moments and see an opportunity because they know that this is a fundamentally good company that's going to come back, but they, you know, they, they put pressure to, to achieve some short-term results from that. So Whole Foods was able to withstand that in the last crisis. But this time around, uh, you know, as, as we, you know, a conscious business is still a business. It's going to go through cycles and there will be adjustments and strategic challenges and competitive issues and so forth. So, you know, you're not immune from any of that. And so Whole Foods was going through one such period of making those adjustments. And with all the activist investors circling them, the number of possible outcomes that could have happened. Um, the best outcome would have been for this company, you know, to you have patient investors and allow them to figure things out and then you know, go back to being who they are and go to the next stage, the next chapter of their story. But those pressures were, were becoming pretty intense. And then I think in that environment, you know, the acquisition by Amazon seemed pretty shocking in the beginning. But as we thought about it, it's, you know, this could be a very, very good thing, actually. It, first of all, shields Whole Foods from the short-term pressures, which were building tremendously. And that's one of our challenges in our, in our, in our public market system. The activist investors can often come in with that opportunistic mindset. As John, you know, John referred to them as greedy bastards <laughs> by name, you know, a particular investor group that was coming after them. Um, they're taking something that took 40 years to, to, to create, you know, basically can destroy its soul overnight by forcing it to do something that's not in its long-term best interest. So I think the, the opportunity here, you know, Amazon is an interesting company because it has tremendous strengths. It truly is the most customer-centric company in the world. It is one of the most innovative companies in the world. Uh, it's a very dynamic uh, company. But in the past, and I did feature them in Firms of Endearment, you know, which was 2007. And so they were in that, in that, in a, in that sense a conscious company with a purpose and with... Uh, with an emphasis on certainly the customer stakeholder, but the employee stakeholder over time seemed to have been left behind to a degree. And a culture was created that, you know, it became a tough place to work for many people, including the warehouse and so forth. I think I've seen evidence that the company has taken some of that criticism to heart and has actually been uh, improving greatly in, uh, in working conditions and so forth. But I think that through this merger, John, as a very, very strong leader, has the opportunity to influence a much larger entity in, uh, today, Amazon, to become more consciously conscious, you know, to have Jeff Bezos become more uh, closely identified with this philosophy. And I, I feel that has a very good chance of happening. So it protects Whole Foods, it gives them the opportunity to, you know, to, to build on what they have done. Amazon is very respectful of what they have bought. You know, they're not looking to extract value, they're looking to help add value. 
through their own capacities and technology and innovation and so forth. But they're not looking to destroy what, what made that company what it is. So I think Whole Foods can grow and flourish uh, under that umbrella. And that's that's their history. You know, They don't mess with the good acquisitions. Uh, but also, I think there can be an impact uh, to Amazon on from this as well. So that's what we're looking towards, that this will ultimately end up being a big uh, you know, benefit or a boost to the conscious capitalism idea. Because that's why Amazon bought Whole Foods, because it is a special company. It is a conscious company. So, you know, that's, Raj, yeah. have you sent your invitation to Jeff to come to one of the CEO events for <laughs> yes. Conscious Capital? We will. We will. We certainly have that intention, and we will uh, at the right time. You know, and John, and I've had some conversation with John as well. So we will, we will do that Excellent. at the right time. You know? Well, uh, you know, we kind of geek out about purpose and conscious capitalism, as you already know. So uh, we talked about some of your books. One of the most recent uh, was a collaboration with Nilima Bhatt, uh, who explores, um, she, along with you, explore the masculine and feminine powers that we need to be most successful in business. Explain that, because I think when a lot of people hear masculine and feminine powers, they're trying to sort of wrap their head around what all that means. Uh, yeah. My mind uh, can go to the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> we talk about the <laughs> biblical feminine uh, yeah. and a lot of the conversations that came from that book. But I think, sure. tell us more about that. Yeah, no, it's something that I had uh, observed, you know, right from the beginning, right? Firms of endearment, companies that are built on love. And so this idea and leaders who openly talk about love and care, like John Mackey and, and uh, Kip Tindall and even Senegal and, and Herb Kelleher, right? Their stock market symbol is love for Southwest Airlines, LUV. So there is, I, I was noticing that in the world of business, which has been a very macho militaristic kind of uh, milieu forever, right? It's mostly run by men based on a very limited set of masculine values, domination, aggression, ambition, winning, results at all costs, kind of a win-lose mindset, you know, business almost as a form of warfare. And if you think about the language, terminology, and mindset, and even organizational structure of business, it all comes from the military. Because in the 19th century, when we started to have large corporations for the first time, the only large organizations that existed were armies. And so we borrowed, you know, the hierarchy, for example, right? Command and control, you know, the way of organizing, um, the mindset of, um, you know, the language, for example, of strategy and tactics and operations and the front lines, which we use in business. All of those words actually come from the military, right? So business became seen as another form of war. It's about capturing market share. It's about vanquishing your, you know, your competitors and so forth. So that mindset, which has been a very masculine, even macho kind of a mindset, has prevailed. And we've talked about business as, you know, only the paranoid survive, and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, it's not personal, it's just business. You even hear that kind of line in the movie like Godfather. Remember, he had to kill somebody? And he tells that guy's son, you know, don't take it personally. It was just business. Right, know? right. <laughs> so this whole mindset is so toxic. And it's not fully human. Because that's not what all human, full humanity is, right? So, you know, all of us, as Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman. Every woman has an inner man. What we mean is we have the so-called masculine and feminine within us, the yin and the yang, right? 
It's not that men are incapable of feeling or compassion or empathy or vulnerability, or that women are incapable of uh, you know decisiveness and and action and strength. You know, we all have all of that, but you know there are perhaps some degrees of uh, you know uh, a matter of degree in terms of men and women having different qualities in different measure, but also societally we are conditioned to suppress that so-called feminine side, right, in boys and girls to a large extent. And so society has evolved in that way, domination of every societal institution being run by men based on a limited set of masculine values. And I had observed that conscious companies, firms of endearment are different, that they are in touch with the so-called feminine side, and we are seeing the rise of feminine values in society, right? Yeah. And we also see that embodied in the uh, role of women and the opportunities available to women in this century, which are dramatically different than what they have been historically. Women now outnumber men in college dramatically, like close to 60% of college students are women. And there are more women college graduates cumulatively in the US since 1989. And that ratio continues to skew in favor of women. In a world where we need more and more higher education, women have an inherent advantage. Every white collar profession will be dominated by women. And as we get more women in the world of work and in leadership, we're going to see fundamentally a shift in the essence of what it means to be a leader. Because in the past, women had to conform to the male masculine model. You know, you have to be more tough, more aggressive, more, you know, um, kind of ruthless than the toughest man in order to succeed. But now that we have more women coming as leaders, they can actually be who they are. And there's a lot of research, you know, you look at the Athena Doctrine that did 60,000 interviews defining what means to be masculine, feminine, also the, what does it mean to be a good leader, finding a strong correlation between the so-called feminine and, uh, and good leadership. Right, and other other research also showing that now, you know, the catalyst.org, if you go, the tons of studies that show the impact of having more women on boards and leadership positions in terms of the performance of businesses over time and uh, innovation and, you know, better ethics and better governance and all kinds of things. So we're starting to see that the world is fundamentally going through this shift. The rise of feminine values to me is the biggest story of this century. The 19th century was about the end of slavery and the 20th was about the end of totalitarianism. I think the 21st is about the end of the suppression of the feminine and the integration of the feminine and with the masculine, finally. And that's really what Shakti leadership is about. It's not about saying we need to get rid of masculine and only have feminine. It's about saying we need to become whole human beings, especially as leaders, which means we need to cultivate all the aspects of ourselves. Right? right, and have access to nurturing, caring, compassion, along with strength, discipline, focus, courage, and resilience, and so forth. Cultivate the mature masculine and the mature feminine qualities. And there are ways we can do that, become a whole person. But beyond that, we also talk about cultivating our higher selves as well as our child selves, not losing touch with the playful side while we also aspire to higher consciousness and deeper wisdom. So the summary phrase for that book is really that the conscious leader is the wise fool of tough love. <laughs> okay, you have wisdom and you have the capacity for being lighthearted and playful. You can be tough, but you also are rooted in love. And you can be all of those things at the same time. And you also know in a given situation what you need to bring more of. Situations call for more 
you know, toughness, or they might call for a light touch, etc. So how do you become flexible? So become whole and then become flexible as a leader while remaining congruent with, with our purpose. I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I'm definitely buying the book because I yes. haven't read the whole thing yet. And I loved the chapter of conscious leadership in conscious capitalism. And it sounds like that's just uh, an expansion on that idea in a much more in-depth way. Yes. Excellent. So I, I think I probably know the answer to this question already, but uh, what if I'm a student at Babson College and I want to take a class uh, by Professor Sisodia, what does that feel like? Is it a lot like this interview <laughs> with this incredible <laughs> lecture and wisdom just pouring down uh, upon us? It's a strange case. The course is called Conscious Capitalism, actually. And, uh, you know, somebody walking by the classroom, you might look in and see uh, the, the lights are dimmed and there's some music playing. We start every class with meditation because the course is not only about understanding the four tenets of conscious capitalism, it's also about being on a, your own journey as a, as a conscious leader. And you cannot be a conscious leader unless you're a conscious human being. So how do you elevate your consciousness? You know, how do you awaken to your, your, your own consciousness? So that's a big part of the journey. It's about self-discovery. Uh, it's about understanding, you know, how you think. It's about exploring deeper ideas. Every week, uh, you know, they go through the whole week doing exercises around becoming more mindful, examining your mental chatter, living in an other-centered universe, cultivating appreciation and gratitude, examining your mental models, etc. Each of these go on for one to two weeks, and then you share what you learn from that. And we have other sort of wisdom lessons, etc. that we start after we do our meditation. And then we get into some of the conceptual uh, material and have lots of guest speakers, CEOs, and others who come and talk about how they have brought this to life, uh, etc. So it's a, it's a really transformative experience for the students because... You know, they come into it after, in some cases, three years, because they're mostly seniors, of hearing a different message. You know, even at Babson, the traditional paradigm of business is still the dominant one in terms of what they learn, right? So business is still about profit maximization and shareholder value and all of that, you know, so that's what they get. And then they come to this class and it challenges them to rethink all of that. So, uh, is there somebody shapes. across the hall from you uh, at Babson that shouts at you and tells you you're wrong and that it's really about money? <laughs> yes. So interestingly, you know, in every business school, when you give these kinds of talks, and at Babson we have a lot of liberal arts faculty as well as business faculty, and you know, some people of course get it and they are already aligned with this way of thinking. But then you get some of the liberal arts people saying, "Well, business can never be good. It's fun. Capitalism is fundamentally about exploitation, right? So you can't have." They, they reject the very premise. And then you have people from finance and accounting and some others who say, no, business is just about making money. That's a solitary objective function. You can't, don't, don't complicate things, you know? So there are people, again, who refuse to see things differently. They're not there, you know? But there are others <clears throat> who are in the middle who actually do get it. I think that's a growing proportion, but it still remains a distinct minority even in business schools. You know, it's funny, I was going to write an op-ed a few years ago, why do business professors hate, you know, business? <laughs> <laughs> or hate capitalism, you know? Right. A lot of business professors even, you know, they don't understand what capitalism has done for us. But, you know, others only look at it in terms of the, the profit motive. A lot, there's a long way to go here. I had a, a very interesting conversation with my uh, father-in-law on a houseboat uh, in the Hudson River talking about 
he has an economics degree uh, from, uh, I believe it was Columbia, and we I was reading Conscious Capitalism at the time, and he read the book during the course of that houseboat journey, and uh, he basically about threw the book into the water and said, oh, he's a horseshit, you yes. know. Communism, socialism. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. uh, the, I know uh, we have limited time here, so the last question I have is really, you spend your days talking about all this. You talked about some maybe uh, some of the things you might do to sort of recenter and meditation to become a more uh, conscious leader. What are the things that you do just to unwind, to relax? I mean, it, are, is Raja Sodi out there in the garden pulling weeds? Are you putting on your favorite vinyl <laughs> album? I mean, what what's that look like? Well, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the Charles River from my window, you know. So, I, I mean, I really do love being out in nature. I love to go on bike rides or walks. I can't jog anymore, unfortunately, because of three knee operations. But I do like being out uh, out in nature. I'm also like to do a little more kayaking and things like that. Uh, I also love to read, of course, uh, listen to music, do a little bit of singing, you know, Indian music. You know. Really? Uh, so yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> Those are the things I like to do to to uh, to unwind, and of course, spend time with family and children and so forth. So each uh, new book that comes out will also have an MP3 of Raj singing. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to to speak with us. And uh, I know you mentioned the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide is something that's upcoming, as well as healing businesses. Is that correct? Well, it's the uh, that one we're still very early. We're just at the book proposal stage. But the healing organization, that's got me very energized, actually. I do think business, the meta purpose. I've, used, I've been using healing as an acronym for, for purpose that every purpose needs to be a healing purpose because we live in a world of, of tremendous pain and suffering, right, all the time. Yes. And if you're not part of the healing, we are probably, if you're not consciously part of the healing, we may unconsciously be part of the hurting. And the fact is our work is a tremendous source of stress for a lot of people. It's a source of ill, Ill health. Uh, you know, stress leads to chronic disease and so forth, and people are not engaged, they don't feel respected, they don't feel heard, etc. So work is actually making things worse. And it's taking whole people and over time burning them out and breaking them down, stressing them out. I believe the opposite is possible. You can take people who have been broken and hurt and through work you can heal them if you do it in the right way. So business as healing, not the business of healing, but business as healing. And so that's what I'm really excited about. I mean, examples are some of the ones that you mentioned, you know, Greystone, I think Barry Waymiller, other companies that I'm learning about that actually do this. You know, they are able to do this. And it has an extraordinary, uh, uplifting and inspiring message because not only do those people become healed, but then they become extraordinary in terms of what they can do. You unlock all that extraordinary potential that exists, you know. So business has so much power and opportunity to do so much more than we allow it to do. You know, we've locked it up in this little box. We've, we've told it, it's like a caterpillar that's not being allowed to become a butterfly. You know, saying you have to remain a caterpillar. You know? Yeah. Why not allow business to evolve? It can be, it's capable, you know, it can do so much. We just have to enable that to happen, you know? Thank you. So much. I can't wait uh, for other people to hear this uh, because I know I'm walking away from this and calling it a two pen interview because I'm going to run out of ink when I listen to it back about all the notes I'm going to take. Uh, but you're 
doing incredible work, not just uh, you know with the world in terms of your the books that you're writing, but each of those individual students you have an impact on, I think even in a greater way. So I appreciate what you do and the fact that you took 45 minutes of your day uh, to spend with us and entrepreneurs. I'm very uh, uh, glad to spend this time with you, Daniel. And you you, to, you told me about some companies that I wasn't aware of. So look forward to learning about them. And thank you for the work you're doing. And by all means, uh, please do start a chapter there. And I'd be happy to come there when you do. Excellent. Well, I'll keep you posted. Thank you, Raj. Okay, great. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Raj Sisodia. Uh, I was fo first exposed to Raj's work in uh, 2013 with his book, uh, Conscious Capitalism. And if you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. It's a good read. It's it's quick. You'll It'll take you maybe just a few hours. Uh, and a lot of it, honestly, just really, it makes sense. It's so simple. And yet so many of our um, entrepreneurs and uh, business leaders aren't maybe exposed to it or paying attention to it. Right. Well, it really focuses on that all businesses go through inflections of uh, good times and bad times, but the ones that are conscious businesses that are aware of every stakeholder in their business and how everybody can be mutually uh, can mutually benefit from the business, uh, and that includes the stake. Uh, one of the biggest stakeholders is the community. Um, the environment is considered a stakeholder. The people that are you work for, the customers, they're all people that can be lifted up. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and that's really the the crux of conscious capitalism and uh, living your business with purpose. So if you are a listener and you don't have, uh, you're not an entrepreneur, you're maybe just a fan, and you're wondering, well, how, how can I help? How can I help uh, ch change the uh, landscape? It's easy. All you have to do is support the businesses who are doing it properly. Because other businesses, they pay attention. And they see what, uh, what, you, what this business is doing. They see what Whole Foods is doing, and they try to copy it to an extent. And many of them fail at that, but they keep trying to replicate uh, what's making those businesses succeed, which in the long term would end would end up with this business model being more uh, popular and prominent than it is right now. Yes, indeed. And in fact, we have a list of people we've talked to this year that really do live this kind of purpose and have these kind of uh, stakeholder model businesses. So, uh, Kareem, I'm going to go through this list of the incredible people, most of them right here in town, uh, are people that are doing this and doing it right. And these are people that we've interviewed and talked to on our show this past year. And then Kareem's going to actually give you the list of other people we talked about, maybe in the greater landscape of business or uh, social media. And we'll go ahead and um, also give you a little sneak peek preview of uh, some upcoming guests. Oh, yeah. We'll tell you about that in a second. So first of all, let me thank one of our first interviewees, Stuart Hunter from Roll. Bicycle Company, Tony Capuano from Snap Fitness, Matthew Grossman from Ida G, Haley Boning and Barry Chandler from StoryForge, Christy Campbell from Rev1, Chris Davison from Wolf's Ridge, Claire Coder from Antflow, Tom Burden from Grip, Gripshin, Gripmat, Matt Health, uh, and Dan Rockwell, who were both joined us at the uh, Startup Week, Justin Johnston from Wild Goose Creative, Elaine Grogan Luttrell of Minerva Financial Arts, and Danielle Evans of the... Um, MarmaladeBlue.com. Uh, they all were interviewed by us, took their time out of their day to share their story with us. Please make sure you support their businesses. And we'd like to thank you guys for taking the time to uh, join us on our first year. And we're looking forward to our um, 
upcoming guests, and we're looking forward to getting the chance to talk to you again. So some of the people that we shared your stories with that you can research more about um, are Casey Neistat, Nina West, Hanif willis Abdurakib, Jane Gordy-Abel, Dan Pena, oh, Dan Pena, <laughs> Joe DeLoss, Jenny Brittenbauer, Blake Compton, Doug Ullman, Simon Sinek, Roy Spence, and Kip Tindall, all people we talked about, thought leaders and local stars as well. And huge thank you to our three Patreon sponsors that have given us the most, which is Clay, Mohammed, and Rue. Thank you, all three of you. I hope you got your stickers. And a uh, big shout-out to uh, Kareem's friend who helped us with the intro music this whole year. Yeah, uh, Omar Ildib of Key66 Productions. Um, buddy, thank you so much for that awesome music. And we have some people upcoming, Kareem. Who are some cool interviews we've got already on deck? Oh, yeah, you're listening to Sneak Peek Preview Radio with Kareem and Dan. <laughs> so, so Sneak Peek includes Travis Owens of Curio and Harvest. Brian Goulet of Goulet Pens. We've even got Daniel Montague of Temple Recruits. TempleRecruits.com. TempleRecruits.com. Anyway, you guys, we have had so much fun with you this whole year and are looking forward to what we have coming up. And we know that uh, you will be uh, surprised and excited about what we have. Hopefully, we'll be able to get episodes out even faster for you. But check us out. If you want to start your own podcast, check it out. Blueberry.com. No ease. Use Entrepreneurs as your promo code. And uh, let me tell you about entrepreneurspodcast at gmail.com. So if you're listening and uh, you have any ideas, you have any feedback, uh, we maybe forgot to ask a question, shoot us an email. If you have a business that you're excited about and you want to share it with our audience, go ahead and send us an email. We'd love to hear back. Now, excuse us while we go sip mojitos at the Columbus Beach. <laughs> that, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. 